This is Planet Money from NPR. Just a quick note, today's show is a rerun. It's one of my all-time favorites. It's by Hannah Jaffe-Walt. It's from all the way back in 2010. It's coming up in just a minute. Support for this podcast and the following message come from E-Trade. Investing your money shouldn't require moving mountains, no matter how much or how little experience you have. E-Trade makes investing simpler. And for a limited time, get $100 when you open a new account with just $5,000. It's all about helping your money work hard for you. For more information, visit etrade.com slash learn more. E-Trade Securities, LLC. Member SIPC. Planet Money has a newsletter straight to your inbox. It's just the right amount of economics weekly. Go to npr.org slash newsletter. Fifteen years ago, money basically had no value in Brazil. The inflation rate in Brazil in 1990 was about 80% a month. So imagine just going to the store, like one day eggs will cost a dollar in the store. And then tomorrow they would be a dollar and two cents. And the next day they'd be a dollar and four cents. By the end of the month, they would have almost doubled. And by the end of the year, if inflation continues, eggs would be $1,000. So that was what things were like in Brazil in the 1980s and the early 90s. And it is what they would still be like right now today if it were not for some unlikely heroes. The most unlikely group of national heroes you can imagine, four former drinking buddies from grad school with a crazy plan who were suddenly put in charge of the country's biggest economic crisis ever. But before we meet them and hear their story, let's paint a picture of the problem that they set out to solve. So remember, prices were going up every day in the 80s and early 90s. And if you think about what that actually means in the supermarket, they had to change prices every day. Caetano Ferrari, this flirtatious 75-year-old in Sao Paulo that I met, remembers that that was someone's job, to walk the aisles and change the prices. There's a guy who changed the sticker. He'll pass the guy (laughs) and he'll buy things. Wait, you would walk by the guy? You would, like, get in front of him? You run. In front of him? In front of the guy and buy things like that. So that you could get to the goods before he changed the price? Yes, like that. And the whole day, this this machine doing this. This is Maria Leopoldina Bierenbeck, someone with a very Brazilian long name who spent a lot of time in supermarkets during high inflation. Maria was a housewife with four kids, and she wasn't really the running type. She'd politely ask the sticker man to stop and wait. If he didn't, she had another trick. She'd pull off his new sticker, walk up to the register, and pay the old price. But then they discovered the maquininha, the small machine. And that you couldn't do anything because it printed the price. That, that wasn't easy to take off. Inflation was a pain for people who shopped in stores as well as for people who ran those stores. Because the problem is you can only possibly know that inflation was 80% a month in retrospect. At the time it's actually happening, you have no idea. This is one of the pernicious effects of sustained high inflation. You assume, because prices were going up in the past, that they're going to continue going up in the future, but you don't really know how much. How much do you tell the sticker man to raise prices by? 
So every business in Brazil had to develop different strategies. So some people just set a number for what prices will be. They just said prices will go up 2% every day. Other store owners would go and like just peek at the store down the road and see what their prices were and copy them. And others would look at the exchange rate with the dollar. So people like Isaac Guerkman, he ran a textile factory in a row of textile businesses. And his method was looking at the exchange rate with the dollar combined with good old-fashioned collusion. Every morning, Isaac would get together with the other textile guys. In Brazil, it's very common that you start your day having a glass of coffee. And we start talking the weekend and how our, our football team has, uh, has done. And then someone uh, probably would say, how much you're going to start, are you going to charge, what is the dollar exchange rate? And somebody else would say, uh, was nine, now it's $10, and I have to increase my prices 10%. And, you know, it's not an exactly science. Brazil's problems with inflation all started in the 1950s. The government wanted to build a new capital in Brasilia, and they wanted nice buildings, fancy architects, and didn't have the savings to pull it off. So it created the money to do it. Now, this is an option countries are often tempted to take. They can print money to pay for things they can't afford. The problem, of course, is inflation. So if there's $100 in the economy and you create 100 more, now every dollar is worth half as much. That's inflation. And in Brazil, inflation continued for the next five decades. Year after year, Brazilian money was worth less and less. And this causes all sorts of problems, not just with the sticker man. You know, say you get a $1,000 bonus and you put that money in your drawer a year later, it's worth half as much. So the minute you get paid, the clock is ticking on your money. I talked to one man who told me he used to have nightmares about his money sitting still on his dresser, just losing value. A beer manufacturer told me he stopped making beer because making beer just takes too long. You buy all the grains and hops, and by the time it was brewed, everything was worth so much less. So by the 1980s, inflation was the number one political issue. And so began the plans to fix it. Now, it turns out the best person to talk to about this is Maria Leopoldina Birenbeck, the housewife who peeled off the stickers in the supermarket. Because Maria can take you through a detailed history of each president's failed plan to stop inflation. But you have to ask Maria each question twice, because the first time she always answers like this. I don't know, because I never had to do anything. I was just a plain housewife and mother. And then Maria will proceed to be the most knowledgeable person you will speak to on any topic. Okay, so first up, President Sarney in 1985. And President Sarney's solution to inflation was simple. Businesses are raising prices. Make that illegal. There was a price freeze. Now, there were many problems with that idea, beginning with the fact that no one in the country believed it would actually solve inflation. They figured there would be a time, probably in the near future, where the price freeze would go away. And you know what happened? People hid the merchandise. <laughs> and you, you couldn't buy anything because they wanted the, the prices to, to grow up because the situation was uh, a fantasy. It was not real. You, you couldn't find uh, meat at the butchers. Because they, weren't, they just weren't buying meat to sell? Why couldn't you buy They meat? hid the cattle. Really? Yes. 
You can do that here. It's a very large country, you know. So they hid the cattle waiting for the yes. price freeze to go away. Yes. The main problem with this plan, of course, is you can't just freeze prices and not deal with the underlying problem, the fact that the government is still creating money, which causes inflation. So that was the next guy's idea. President Culler in 1990, he thought, OK, I'll just stop creating so much money. Inflation will eventually go down. Now, here is the problem with that. It has to do with the country's banks. If you were in the small minority of Brazilians who had enough money to have a bank account, it felt like a really great deal. Because in order to get your money, banks had to pay you an interest rate that was higher than the rate of inflation. So in the U.S., you're lucky if you get 2% interest on your bank account. But in Brazil in 1990, people could get 2,000% or more. Money was growing in banks, which helped fuel inflation, which led President Collar to believe bank accounts were part of the problem. And here's where he went really, really wrong. He decided to freeze bank accounts, 80% of private assets. 80% of the money you have in your bank account, you can't take out. Now, Maria is telling me this, and my translator, Flavio Ferreira, was sitting in on our conversation, and he could no longer keep quiet. He remembers when the Minister of Finance made that announcement. And I remember the day when she was on TV explaining that they were going to confiscate everybody's money. So next days, banks would not uh, work. I remember the face of that woman. She had studied in the best schools, and she had been a, a professor at USP, and she was explaining to the nation, as an economist, why we need this to, to, to end inflation. We need the country to be, you know, together with us. But I remember I looked at her and said, God, a government cannot do that. I mean, when, when a government does that, you lose, you lose people's respect. Oh, it was terrible, wasn't it? It was terrible. So many people uh, committed suicide, you know. When you mess with people's money, it does not go well. The economy went off a cliff. President Kohler was impeached. There was a new president, a new finance minister, and inflation went back up again. The Brazilian economy was at a low point, and it looked like there was nothing to be done to fix it. So... Enter our heroes, those four economists we talked about at the beginning, who basically entered the picture now because that new finance minister knew nothing about economics. And so, in March of 1993, he called one of our heroes, Edmar Basha. Oh, I was, I was, I was in, in uh, my office at that university here, uh, the Catholic University. And I got a call soon after I had finished uh, teaching a class, you know. <laughs> And he said, uh, well, uh, I've just been named the finance minister. You know that I don't know any economics. So uh, please uh, come to meet me in Brasilia tomorrow. We need you. Well, I was terrified. We'll get the rest of the story after this. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Squarespace, dedicated to helping you turn your cool idea into a modern website. Visit squarespace.com and use the offer code NPR to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Are you sometimes confused by the economy, befuddled by the financial system, troubled by the trade war? We are here to help. 
with a daily 10-minute briefing on economic news of the day. NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money. Listen now. Basha had been waiting three decades for this call, ever since he and his three friends had taught graduate school together at the prestigious Catholic University in Rio. Four friends who had been studying Brazilian inflation for decades, four buddies at the campus bar complaining to each other about how this government didn't know what it was doing and that government didn't know what it was doing. Four buddies who were now being asked by the government to come and fix things their way, the plan they'd spent years on. And so... Of course, their first answer, no, we don't want to. Here's another one of the four, Andre Lara. This is a, a, this is a process. It's something that requires many years. It's not something that we can do. It's not a magic. It's not a trick that we do overnight. When I asked Lara, wasn't it exciting, though? He looked, he looked kind of confused for a moment and then scornful. People, he told me, should be interested in ideas, not feelings. They thought we had a trick. There is no trick. There is only long, hard, complex, multi-step macroeconomic plans modeled specifically for the Brazilian context. Basha is the more casual of this pair. Yeah, he tells me, we had a trick, but I was busy and I didn't really want to move to Brasilia. The government pressed on. Lara and Basha were taken to dinner with members of parliament who told them how much the country really needed them. They got calls at home. Senators told them, you will have free reign, whatever you think is best. Basha was invited to meet the president. And then I asked him an autograph for my kids. And then he wrote a, a note, a note for my address to my two kids and saying, please tell your father to work fast for the benefit of the country. <laughs> That's what he wrote in the autograph? <laughs> yes, yes, I still have that note. <laughs> so there was a lot of pressure. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Now, I should say the four economists from the Catholic University were not reluctant because they doubted their plan. Dr. Lara does not strike you as someone who doubts anything that emerges from his mind. Yes, I was pretty pretty sure that it was going to work. There was a lot of people that, that didn't understand it, even among professional economists that didn't like the idea and thought it would lead us to hyperinflation. But uh, from the beginning, I was sure there were a lot of people who weren't so sure the plan would work. The IMF, for one, nearly every citizen of the country of Brazil, and Lara's direct collaborator on that plan, Basha. You know, it's one thing to do it uh, at your office. It is the other thing to put the thing together, right? <laughs> it had never, never been put in practice anywhere this way. Basha was eventually won over by the autograph and the finance minister's appeals. And Lara was convinced by a parliamentary dinner where the politicians assured him they'd take whatever difficult measures were needed to keep his idea pure. So here was the idea. Basically, the four economists said, yes, you have to hit the underlying causes of inflation. You have to stop creating money. But you also have to stabilize people's faith in money itself. And this is where their plan was different. People were part of the problem, they thought, their perceptions. People had to be tricked into thinking money had value when all signs told them that was absolutely not true. So Basha says they wrote a plan for a new currency, one that was stable, dependable, trustworthy. The only catch was this currency would not be real. It would not be printed. There would never be coins. It was fake. They called it a virtual currency. 
uh, we call the unit of real value, URV, yes. Yeah, it was a virtue, it didn't exist, in fact. People would still have and use cruceros, the local currency, but everything would be listed in URVs. Your wages would be listed in URVs, taxes were listed in URVs, and all prices in the stores were listed in URVs. And URVs would be held stable. And so, for example, when you went to the store and bought some milk? How much does it cost? You say, well, now we have, it costs X, let's say, one URV. Well, how much is that? Because I cannot pay without URV. So, well, I have this little table here, and today's value of URV in cruzeros is seven cruzeros per URV. So it costs one URV, seven cruzeros. You pay seven cruzeros. You go next week, well, it's still one URV. But then you, you say, well, how, many, how, how many cruzeros? You look, well, well it's 14. Every night, the central bank would put out a memo with the official inflation rate of the day, and it would get printed in the newspaper the next morning so the store clerk could look it up. Monday, one URV is equal to seven cruceros, Tuesday, 12 cruceros, Wednesday, 14. Milk or whatever it was you were buying would stay the same in URVs. And the idea was you would start thinking in the fake currency, in URVs, because just last week you got paid 1,000 URVs Milk costs one URV. Next month, you'd get 1,000 URVs again, and milk would still be one URV. The amount of cruceros, what you actually handed to the clerk, would change, but the price in URVs would not. That was the plan, which Basha presented to the senator from Sao Paulo. And then when I explained to him the plan, you know, he, after a while, you know, he said, well, with some anguish in his voice, said, well, Basha, if this is the only way that uh, you tell me that it can be done, then we'll follow you to the precipice. <laughs> and so the four economists went about explaining to the country that everyone now should talk in a virtual currency. We didn't understand what it was. Uh, we asked, uh, how much is that? Oh, so many urfs. I, I used to say it was a fantasy because, because it, it was a, uh, not real. Still, people used it without being forced to. One store would be selling milk for one URV, and eventually all the stores would be. So people would know that's an appropriate price for milk, which I can tell because I got paid 1,000 URVs. And then when we are satisfied that prices were relatively in good synchrony, we declare, well, from this day, the virtual currency becomes a real currency. The Cruzeiro Real is going to disappear, and everyone is going to receive from now on its wages and pay all for all the prices in the new currency, which is the Real, which is equal to one URV and, and, and also equals to one dollar. And that's, that, that is the trick. It wasn't the only trick, obviously. While they put URVs in place, the group of economists made the government balance its budget and slow down on money creation. And then one day, July 1st, 1994, the central bank deployed truckloads of new cash in this new currency, the real, to banks in the cities, to provinces, and waited on the ready for the four economists to say, go. All that fake money you've been using, it's now real. And I remember, you know, the day, the day that we launched in the Real, I have this journalist who you know, had become a friend of mine. And then she came to me and said, the professor, 
Do you swear that inflation is going to end tomorrow? I said, yes, I swear that's going to end tomorrow. Everybody was very happy. <laughs> Now, I should say, not everyone was happy. Brazil had had 50 years of high inflation. So remember that guy with the textile factory who had coffee every morning to figure out what to charge that day, Isaac Guerkman? He was one of the wealthier Brazilians who had money in the bank. And now that inflation was over, he wasn't earning all that interest. I have to admit that a bankrupt in this change and in, in the currency change. What happened? Well, uh, suddenly the money started to have value and you have to make money from your efficiency and not from your money investment. You had to go back and start producing and competing and having efficiency. I was in the market for more than 20 years when I had to close my factory. Isaac Guerkman's problems aside, our four heroes literally turned Brazil's economy in the opposite direction with their plan. Brazil was finally able to grow in the way it always should have been all along. The country was able to grow true competitive industries, huge players in sugar and oil and iron ore. And Cardozo, the finance minister who hired our four heroes after admitting he knew nothing about economics, he was elected president twice. That was Hannah Jaffe Walt back in 2010. You can email us at planetmoney at npr.org or find us on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Our editor is Brian Erstadt. Our supervising producer is Alex Goldmark. Today's rerun was produced by Bianca Giacobone. I'm Jacob Goldstein. This is NPR. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>